I think I can say with confidence that every single person here in this room wants to live a life of integrity, right? We all want lives of integrity. Uh, We want our private and our public lives to align. We want them to match up. Uh, We all want to behave in a way that's compatible with what we believe. We want consistent, integrated lives. Uh, None of us wants to experience the shame and the guilt and the frustration of hypocrisy. None of us want this huge gap between the, the image we project and how we actually live our lives. We want to be people of integrity, right? Today we're going to look at two verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12, that describe a life of integrity. Peter's going to give two commands. One command is negative, one is positive. One is internal, one is external. And Peter's going to give us uh, really a vision for a consistent, integrated way of life. And he's going to explain that this way of life, this, this life of integrity, puts us in a position, a unique position, position to influence other people for Christ. As a matter of fact, he's going to say that if you live this life, you will have a powerful influence in the lives of people around you. And so today, Peter tells us that a life of integrity involves two things. First of all, a life of integrity means abstaining from the passions of the flesh. This is what he writes in verses in First Peter two eleven. He says, "Indulging the passions of the flesh will compromise our lives. It will absolutely. It will compromise our lives." Notice in verse eleven that Peter's speaking out of his affection for his readers. So he's not speaking out of anger. He's not just speaking because he wants to control their lives. It's affection. He says, "Beloved." In other words, I love you. Therefore, I'm saying this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Eight times in first Peter and second Peter, uh, Peter uses this expression, beloved. And so he's signaling that the things he's commanding flow from his love for them as an apostle and as a a pastor uh, shepherd. In essence, Peter's saying, because I love you, I am urging you to live in a way that's consistent with your identity. And he appeals to their identity in two ways. He calls them sojourners and exiles. And that first term, sojourners, it, uh, it reminded the believers in Asia Minor that they were just like Abraham. They were wandering in a land that was not their own, and they were living among people that did not share their faith in God. The second term, exiles, reminded them that they were just like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when they were living as exiles in Babylon. And so like the Jews living in Babylon, uh, the uh, uh, who they were commanded not to worship the gods of the Babylonians, not to conform to their way of life, Peter urges believers in Jesus Christ to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He says, indulging indulging these passions is incompatible with your citizenship in heaven. And the term translated passion isn't always a reference to sinful desires. In Philippians 1.23, for example, Paul wrote, my desire, my passion is to depart and be with Christ. And so it's just a, a deep, fervent desire. 
Uh, here in 1 Peter 2.11, he's obviously referring to sinful desires because he writes to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's talking about those cravings that are contrary to the will of God, contrary to our identity as the people of God. And chapter 4 uses this term when he writes this. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And then he says this, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, in other words, this short period of time on earth, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he says, interestingly, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And so Peter basically says, before coming to Christ, that was plenty of time. You had all the time you needed to indulge in the passions of the flesh. But now that you're followers of Christ, you should abstain from those passions and you should devote yourselves exclusively to the will of God. And so this word passion, it would include sexual sins for sure, but it would refer to anything that's contrary to the will of God. Now, here's my question. Why is Peter so black and white about the passions of the flesh? Why doesn't he say, you know, we've all got these sinful desires. Avoid them as much as possible. Just try to limit your expression of these things. Why does he have this kind of zero tolerance policy when it comes to the passions of the flesh? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? He says, because they wage war against your soul. And so he uses the imagery of warfare to talk about how dangerous this is. So this is nothing to play with. This is no, this is no uh, trifling matter. When you indulge your, your, the, the passions of the flesh, it's spiritually dangerous. It damages your soul. And that's the most precious thing that's entrusted to us individually is our soul. We live from the soul. Our, our life flows from the soul. And so this is true whether you're, you're indulging in sensuality or revenge or grumbling or materialism or anger. Indulging the passions of the flesh will sabotage your walk with God. It will sabotage the core relationships in your life. It will dull your spiritual senses. People go from being white hot, passionate about God to lethargic and apathetic. Uh, some people just give up the faith altogether. The passions of the flesh are so compelling and, and they are so powerful that they seem more real than God himself. And so he says, because I love you, I'm telling you, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And, and we're in a number of different places, right, when it comes to, to the, this command. Uh, there are some of you who are walking in obedience when it comes to the passions of the flesh. There may have been a time in the past when you were enslaved to these passions, but by the grace of God, he's given you this freedom. You're not, you're not sinless, but, but largely you are able to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You've got certain disciplines set up in your life and convictions that are getting deeper and deeper. And I would say to you that we need you as mentors. We need you to, to come alongside others in the body of Christ because there are, are many in our midst who are right in the middle of this battle. Uh, it's, if it's not a, a weekly, it's a daily battle with the passions of the flesh. And it's a warfare that to many people seems unwinnable. 
uh, impossible that I'm ever going to get past this addiction or this, this, this craving that I have. And I would say to you, I would just remind you of a couple things. Number one, I would remind you of Peter's motive here. This is really God's motive. God calls you beloved. He says, because I love you, I'm giving you this command. I'm not trying to stamp out all your fun. I'm not a God who dislikes pleasure. He says, I don't want you to see you damage your soul. And so his motive is love. God calls us beloved. He really does. He proved that in Christ. The second thing I would remind you of is that God's power is available. Uh, just the, the images that are used to describe the Christian life, salvation, what Jesus promises, he promises his power. You have to know that God wants to give you freedom when it comes to the passions of the flesh. Uh, first, second Peter 1, uh, Peter wrote that we have, we've been giving everything we need for life and godliness. John 4, you remember what John told the Samaritan woman? He said that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. In other words, I'm going to be so satisfying to you that all these other cravings are going to pale in comparison. Uh, Galatians 5, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so you may be a believer in Christ, you may have not experienced that before, but this is the promise. It flows from a heart of love, and it flows from God's offer of power, empowering us to be obedient to these commands. And finally, there may be others here, I have no doubt there are, some of you are here, and you are not a follower of Christ, and your dominant thought is, why in the world would I want to abstain from the very thing that brings me the most pleasure, the most escape, the most really whatever, some grand function in my life. Well, all I would say is taste and see that the Lord is good. I, I would urge you, call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He will put his spirit within you. You will become a new creature in Christ. You will have new appetites and God will give you a desire for things that you never thought possible. And you will have a family. You'll have a family to walk with you and to help you in these things. And I would encourage you, look around you, the, the people you know, which do you respect the most? Which do you want to be like the most? People who indulge the passions of the flesh and just a wild abandon whatever desires they have or people that uh, live for the will of God. Which do you want to be like? I would just encourage you, uh, consider Christ and what he offers you. But that's the, 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 the foundation of a life of integrity where we abstain from the passions of the flesh. The second thing Peter tells us in, in verse 12 is that a life of integrity involves behavior that reflects our citizenship in heaven. And he talks there, he says, he says, our good behavior has the potential it's so good that it has the potential of influencing others for Christ. <clears throat> Verse 12, Peter writes this. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Earlier in chapter 1, Peter had said, you need, if you address his father, the one who judges all impartially, you need to know that he's watching your behavior. Here he says, there's somebody else watching your behavior, namely all the people around you who don't yet know Christ. And so people outside the church are watching also. And Peter writes, we should keep our conduct among the Gentiles 
honorable. He's talking about how we actually act. He's not saying it's, it's true, but he's not saying you need to make sure every dot uh, of your theology is perfect and, and good. He's saying you need to live good lives. And remember, the dominant motif that's running through 1 Peter is that of living in exile. So when he talks about the Gentiles, he's not implying that all of his readers were Jewish and the others were non-Jewish. No, he's saying just as the Jewish people lived among Gentiles when they were in Babylon, they lived among non-Jewish people, Christians are living in exile among people that don't yet know Christ. And as we live among people without Christ, we are to keep our conduct honorable. The New American Standard translates it excellent. It's just the common word in the New Testament for good. We're to have good behavior. And ironically, and this, this is worth pondering, the Jewish nation was more obedient and they were more effective as a light to the Gentiles when they were in exile than when they dwelt securely in the land. When they were living in the land and they had abundance, they tended to get complacent. They tended to get sloppy and lazy when it came to their walk with God. They had these, these just incredible blind spots, and we read, how could that even happen? But when they were in exile in Babylon, they were vigilant, and they were purposeful in their walk with God. And so their example, living in exile, uh, their example in exile serves as a paradigm for us. Now, I want us to think about this for a few minutes, about the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so on the one hand, uh, they were vilified as evildoers because they, would, because they would worship only Yahweh. And if you've read the book of Daniel, you know what happened to them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, why? Because they refused to bow down and worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And I, I love what they said. They said, our God will rescue us, but even if he doesn't. We will never bow down and worship anyone but Yahweh. Daniel, what happened to Daniel? He got thrown in the lion's den. What was his crime? What, what, what horrific thing did he do against the, the, nation, the kingdom of Babylon? Well, he prayed to Yahweh three times a day with the window open. And in both cases, God rescued them and God preserved their lives. But the point is that their faith in God was offensive to the dominant culture in Babylon. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, they excelled physically. They refused to eat the king's choice food, but they kept getting stronger. And they excelled academically. And because of the power of their lives, again, Nebuchadnezzar didn't promote them because of their theology. It was the power of their lives. Uh, they, they had wisdom. Uh, they had this gifting. Uh, some of the other magicians, they could make up, they could, they could make up uh, interpretations to dreams. So they said, one time Nebuchadnezzar got to this point and said, I'm not even going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel came through, okay? And so that's why they were promoted up through the ranks. Because they refused to defile themselves and because they kept their behavior ex excellent among the Babylonians, God used them in powerful ways. Nebuchadnezzar even ended up giving glory to the God of the Jews. And he said, God knows how to humble those who walk in pride. And so that's the paradigm. Uh, here in verse 12, Peter advocates that very same perspective for Christians who are living in and among people without Christ. 
And so on the one hand, Peter acknowledges that unbelievers will sometimes speak against you as evildoers. As we mentioned a couple times before, it may well have been that some of the original readers of this letter were literally exiles. They were exiled from Rome and they were resettled in Asia Minor. And the locals would have probably viewed them with suspicion. Who are these people who are now living among us? They're, they're a threat to our way of life. They reject our customs. They don't worship our gods. They, they are a threat to our way of life. And so Christians were sometimes accused of being antisocial. Christians were often in the first century accused of being atheists. Why? Because you don't believe in our gods. You, you don't believe in our gods. You're atheists. And so they, they had all this abuse heaped upon them. And in our day, uh, people speak against us as evildoers evil for a variety of different reasons. And we have to admit, first off, sometimes they have a point. Sometimes we do not... Uh, represent Jesus well. Sometimes we don't do the things Jesus told us to do. We don't have the mind of Christ when it comes to the way we behave. And so sometimes we have to say, guilty is charged. And so we need to admit it. We need to repent. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter's talking here about people slandering us simply because we're followers of Christ. And in our day, uh, we are come to a place in our culture where, where many times people slander us for simply believing what the scriptures teach, okay? We, we simply say, this is what I understand the Bible to teach. Uh, for example, a biblical view of human sexuality often brings the accusation that, that you are narrow-minded and you are a bigot, or our commitment to take the gospel to the, the farthest reaches of the world. Sometimes it, it invites this, this accusation. Uh, you are out to dominate people. You're out to colonize people. And you want to force your religion on them, even though they're otherwise happy and fulfilled. And so, so these charges will be brought. And later in the chapter, Peter's going to tell us that when this happens, when you are wrongly accused of things, you need to suffer the way Christ did. He didn't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but he gave a blessing instead. He said, he's our model. We suffer as Christ suffered. And so on the one hand, sometimes people will speak evil against us, uh, speak against us as evildoers. But on the other hand, and this is a staggering thing, Peter lays up this possibility that others will see our good deeds and be so persuaded that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the return of Christ when Jesus visits us once again. In other words, there's this overlap between the values of believers and the values of the dominant culture all around us. Uh, basic Christian virtues, if they're lived out, if they're not just talked about, but if they're actually lived out, I'm talking about things like compassion and humility and kindness. These basic Christian virtues are respected and appreciated by almost everybody. And so Peter's saying that there should be something about our behavior that is winsome and even persuasive. Uh, Karen Jobes wrote this in her commentary on 1 Peter. She said, the implication of this overlap is that Peter does not seem to be thinking in binary categories that characterize society as evil and the Christian community as good. And so binary thinking is like, we're Christians, we're good. Non-Christian, everybody and everything is bad. 
Number one, that's not true. That is not the case. And number two, that unnecessarily puts a distance between us and people who need Christ. The fact that there's this overlap in virtues, what we say we believe and what we should be living out and what society at large values, that's an opportunity. It's a God-given opportunity for us to let our light shine before people. And so in fact, people all around us value and respect many of the same things that we do. Let me give you an example. Do you remember what James said, pure and undefiled religion is? So you wanna know what that is? It's visiting widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself unstained by the world. And so that's the same integrity that Peter's talking about. We keep ourselves unstained by the world. We abstain from fleshly passions. And then what do we do? We engage in good works. And, and honestly, if you don't just talk about loving widows and orphans, if you actually love people who are distressed, your non-Christian friends are going to say, yes, that's, that's the way you ought to be living your life. And, and I was hanging out with one of my, I call him pre-Christians. He's been one of my unbelieving friends. And I just, I just share my life with him. He's just very easy. He's not really impressed with all my pastor skills. But when I talk about the other things I do in the community, like big brothers, big sister, he's just like, yeah, absolutely. I've got a, a little right now who's basically an orphan. And my friend, he's like, he's drawn to that. He's like, I wonder if I should do that, you know? And so that's a commonality. It's something that's it's just a good works that we should, should let other people see. And that's what Jesus advocated, okay? In, in Matthew 5, 16, he taught we should live transparent lives. And again, we shouldn't be show-offs. We shouldn't be braggadocious, but we should live transparent lives. Sometimes I think we're just far too insulated. But Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. What's the presupposition of that, that verse? If you're a Christian, you're going to do good works. That is a given. Jesus is saying, you need to live a transparent life so that other people see it. There's a possibility that they will be so persuaded by your life and your God that they too will give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, of course, motivation is important here. We don't do good works to impress people. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, if you do that, you have your reward in full. You want people to be impressed? Got it. God's not impressed, though. Your father who sees in secret will repay you. So it's, it, motivation counts. Why do we do good works? Because we're followers of Christ. Because he was compassionate. He saw people as distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. We do too, and we are moved by compassion. Our hearts go out to people, and so we do good works. James talked about the same, same type of motivation. Brilliant, what he writes in James 3.13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? How do you answer that question? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So you don't prove that you're wise and understanding with your words. Seriously, believe me, I'm really, really wise. I, I am so incredibly wise. I have understanding on more things than you can imagine. That's not very persuasive, right? You want to prove that you're wise and understanding by your behavior, by your good conduct. You persuade people by your works that are done in gentleness of wisdom. Gentleness is such a, in, in, in such short supply in our culture. Gentleness 
of wisdom. And so the possibility that Peter is holding out here is that they may see your good deeds and glorify God when Jesus visits us again. Some will be persuaded. Some will enter the kingdom. Amazing. This past week, I asked several people here at Faith about their experience with our two verses today. Specifically, I wanted them to share with me examples of how uh, their unbelieving friends, whether it's in their family or their neighborhoods or their workplaces, how they respect the good works that they do just as an expression of their faith. And what I heard was fascinating, and what I heard confirms what Peter says in these verses. Uh, one, one businessman told me that his, his customers, uh, his clients, respect him because, quote, I did what I said I would do even if it cost me money. He said people absolutely respected that. He said most people just assume that if it's to your advantage to go back on your word, that you'll just do it. You just will. But because he had the integrity and the honesty, if I said it, I'm absolutely going to do it even if it cost me money, he said that was striking to people that, he, that he, he served. Another person mentioned a family member who in, is pretty much the only person in the whole extended family who's not walking with Christ, and she had chosen to, to walk away from the faith. And uh, she said that, that, uh, that this family member knows that the rest of the family does not agree with her lifestyle and uh, the choices she made, she said, but there is no doubt in this family member's mind, my family loves me, and they accept me. And so they've been able to speak the truth, to speak it in love. They've been able to stay in relationship, and this family member just receives grace and receives unconditional love at every turn. I talked to a couple of, of businessmen whose clients, customers know that they're Christians. They just just kind of let it, let it be known over the years. And the, this openness about their faith has provided opportunities for them to talk about what Jesus said. <clears throat> uh, one man who's a financial advisor, he said during financial downturns, he's had the opportunity to encourage clients and, and just to let them know, for the record, I don't put my faith, I don't put my trust in money, I put my trust in God. Uh, I know another man told me, he, he talked about his uh, a tenant who was experiencing just an incredible amount of anxiety, and he was able to share with her. He said, you know what Jesus taught in Matthew 6? He said, Jesus feeds the birds. He clothes the flowers of the field. And so I, as a follower of Christ, have this confidence that I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to worry because I've got a Father in heaven who loves me even more than them. And so these opportunities to speak about Christ were the byproduct of doing their work honorably, to doing their work with excellence unto the Lord. And that's the way it happens. Our works and our words go together. And most often, and this is what Peter is suggesting, is that we lead with our works. We lead with our good deeds. That's what people see. And that oftentimes leads to an opportunity for words. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes, you need to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness, there it is again, with gentleness and reverence. 
And so the, the picture he's painting here is that if you do your work honorably, you do good works, and you, you behave excellently among people, there may come a day with some people when they want to know, what is your deal? Honestly, what is it about you? Why do you believe what you believe? How do you, why do you have this hope, this confidence about the future? And that's when you're able to, to share about your faith in Christ. They're basically saying your behavior is sending this message loud and clear. Now I would like you to put it into words. I want to hear the message. So we share the gospel in words and deeds. Another person told me <clears throat> that one of her unbelieving friends asked her, she said, where do you go to church? And it was kind of out of the blue. She said, why, why do you want to know that? And her friend said, when I see you and your husband together, I want what you have. Was she seeing a perfect marriage? No, actually, that was not the case. Uh, what her friend noticed was that they were, had this ability and this heart to apologize to each other and forgive each other. And so this friend and her husband had all sorts of conflict, but they never got the point to the point of humbling themselves and, and experiencing forgiveness. And this, I've said this a hundred different times. I heard it 35 years ago. Absolutely is true. People don't need to see perfection. They need to see redemption, okay? They need to see how redeemed people live. When you offend somebody, forgiveness is the silver bullet in the Christian life. Uh, it's in, in uh, Ephesians 4.32. Paul wrote, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so it's a powerful thing. This is one of those ways we let our light shine when we show, each other, show other people how we forgive. You tell somebody, I, you've offended me, but I forgive you. I'm never going to make you pay for it, what you've done to me. Why? Because I have sinned against God, and he's never going to make me pay for what I've done to him. Because of what Christ did on the cross, I'm never going to have to pay for my sin. He's forgiven me, and so I forgive you. And so that type of behavior, words, works and words, it's a powerful apologetic for the faith. And so I hope that this vision of 1 Peter 2, verses 10 and 11 is compelling for you. Peter is giving us a vision for a life of integrity where our internal and our external lives match up, where our behavior matches our beliefs. And this life of integrity, it puts us in this, this place that nobody else can occupy, this place where we're in a position to be used by God to influence other people for Jesus. And that is a grand privilege. It really is. Heavenly Father, we pray that, that these truths we've been talking about today would be burned on our hearts. Would you write them on our hearts, that this would be more natural than, than the converse. And God, I pray for those <clears throat> here today who are struggling mightily with the passions of the flesh, uh, maybe who have, have no confidence whatsoever that they can ever abstain from those passions God, would you give that person courage? Would you give that person the will to trust you, to look to you, to experience your power and your goodness? Convince that person that you are giving this command from a heart of love. And God, we pray for ourselves as individuals and for an entire church body. May we be people who do good deeds, that we, we live excellent lives because we love you and because we know you and that we would let our light shine brightly, living transparent lives before others. And we pray, God, that as we, we honor you, 
uh, and your name is, is famous through us, that we'd have opportunities to, to talk about Christ and share the hope within us. And so, God, we want this life of integrity, and we can't just begin to pull it off in our own strength. And so we ask your spirit to accomplish within us what needs to happen. We submit to you. We submit to, to his prompting, his leading in our life. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.